Hi, I'm Neil from the RuneQuest Project and welcome to Tales from the Black Alynx, a podcast series where we talk to the authors of Johnstown Compendium Publications. I'm joined today by a prolific author whose work includes a series of popular monthly monster publications, as well as the Throat of Winter scenario and Treasures of Garantha compilation. So without further ado, who are you and where are you? I am Austin Conrad. I am sitting in my bedroom in Minnesota, uh, hoping that it no longer is snowing outside in the morning. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, that just shows how global we are. I'm sitting here in Perth mm-hmm. and it's 30 degrees and uh, I'm considering going in the pool afterwards. So, uh, yeah, cool. uh, I'm a little jealous. <laughs> so what's your history with role-playing games and how did you first encounter RuneQuest or, or HeroQuest or Quest Worlds, it's now called? So I uh, might be giving a bit of the goat away. My first role-playing game was the 3.5 edition of Dungeons & Dragons in high school. I'm a few decades behind some of y'all. In college, I had a, we'd moved on to playing Pathfinder because that was the popular iteration and none of people I ever knew really liked the fourth edition. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine uh, was raised playing RuneQuest. Uh, his dad liked AD&D and liked RuneQuest and a lot of this older stuff, and he played that with my friend and his sibling. And so um, we had an interim in one of our ongoing Pathfinder games, and he decided to subject us to this thing called RuneQuest, where we rolled a D100, and we had to have, read two dice instead of one, and we had to divide things instead of doing addition. And overall, it was a wonderful experience. I have a friend who, the first couple times he played RuneQuest, he never took a point of damage because dumb luck. <laughs> and then from there, uh, we kind of we kind of fittered back and forth for a while with Pathfinder and RuneQuest, and eventually settled into RuneQuest more as like long term. Would that have been RuneQuest three then? Yeah, yeah, RuneQuest three, yeah. I played a uh, knight sorcerer in RuneQuest three for on and off for around five years, and that was the first. That wasn't the first really long role playing game character I'd had, but it was the first one that I really sunk into. Does that mean that you skipped Glorantha? If it was RuneQuest three, did you go straight into the kind of the mythic? We nominally played in Glorantha. We, you know, we said yes, we're in Glorantha. We, I think we, yeah, we visited Rabbit Hat Farm. We ended up in Tavis briefly. I know we spent some time at Gimby's. We killed a lot of things in the rubble. As you do. As you do. Uh, and I know at one point we ended up getting our butt saved by the coders. They took us under their wing and we swanned off to Glamour. And our base was in Glamour for a couple of years of campaign. And mm. we had no idea anything about it. The rough guide would have been wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very helpful. So on that then, did you have a favorite RuneQuest um, official publication? My favorite, I would probably say, this, this is a slightly weird choice, is specifically the Gloranthin Classics edition of Borderlands and Beyond. It was the first book I picked up on my own, kind of when I was trying to find out not just more about RuneQuest, because I, I managed to dig up a box on Amazon from the old RQ3, mm-hmm. but when I was trying to figure out more, like, what's going on with this Glorantha thing? And Borderlands and Beyond, that specific edition, has a really cool medley of lore and uh, fun scenarios, and it's got a great dungeon crawl in it, which we played lots of dungeon crawls at the time, and that was when I was about six months before the new edition came out, and it was looking like I was going to have to start GMing because my friend was no longer able to play with us, just scheduling. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And Borderlands and Beyond really kind of has it all. You got cool NPCs to draw from. Uh, you've got plunder in it. You've got lots of plunder in it. And it's really kind of an all-in-one package book for setting and scenarios and lore and all this great stuff. So did you do mostly playing then, or did you do uh, quite a lot of GMing as well over your time playing? I have mostly GM'd the new edition, and I have mostly played prior edition. Did you have any experience with RQ6, or did you kind of skip that and went straight into um, RQG? My experience with RQ6 is that I have tried to read the Mithras rulebook twice, and I have successfully read... Uh, Shores of Carantia, which is a very interesting setting um, and really speaks to the Hellenophile inside me. But no, I don't have much experience with MRQ or RQ6 or any of that stuff really in there. Yeah. Um, it may also be worth noting that what we played of RuneQuest 3 was, well, we, we've come to call it RuneQuest Bastard. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was severely house ruled. Um, I'm still not sure I've ever played a straight by the book game of RuneQuest, which is on my do list because I, I just need to figure out how, how, how strike ranks actually work. Gotcha. So what were kind of, what were some of the um, some of the house rules? Hmm. The most notable one would, would be what we did for sorcery. So there's not a lot of sorcery out there for official publications for any any edition. I was introduced into a milieu with a oral tradition of grabbing all of Sandy together into a Frankenstein of rules and then playing with that. Um, Sandy Peterson has a well, moderately well-known um, set of rules for Western sorcery um, based around the concept of presence, which is kind of this magical power that a sorcerer builds up over their career. We cannibalized about half of that, jammed the Tecumel Solyanu sorcery that he had developed for a RuneQuest Tecumel into Glorantha, and then also drew some stuff from what was the RQ3 default, and kind of... Imagine sticking all that in a cauldron and stirring the pot. Yeah. And did it work? I only figured out how all this didn't work when I tried... I was the one who tried to codify all of this. That was about the first long RuneQuest thing I ever wrote. It's still laying around on the internet somewhere. If you hunt around on BRP, you can find it. It's about 80,000 words. It's very long. Wow. And most of that is spells. And that was part of the fun, was that there's just so many spells. But they're not well-defined, so I had to redefine all of them. I've never really got on with Sorcery for some reason. It, it, even in RuneQuest 3, the, the first original edition. It is a bit spreadsheets. What really drew me to... RuneQuest 3, and when we played it, and when we started getting really into it, and when I started getting really into it, was two things. You know, there's the classic RuneQuest, anyone can wear armor, you can wear whatever you want, and anyone can learn magic, anyone can do anything. I loved that. That was really mm -hmm. cool. The other thing that drew me into it was sorcery, because it's this arcane, nasty, awful rule set, and it feels like you're doing magic. <laughs> I used to get, I, I got, I still get teased by my friends because I would stare at my character sheet for about five minutes between my turns and our combats, calculating and figuring out what percentage I'm actually rolling on. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not, I'm not a math inclined person, but it was still terrific fun. So, and you kind of lean towards those sorcerer stroke magic using characters? Often, yeah. The most recent long term, not long term, but 
longest character I've played lately was a a barbarian, actually, in fifth edition of D&D, <laughs> <laughs> which my friend who was running the game gave me a very strange look because he's used to me playing these wizards. But usually I'm playing. I, I like the wizards. I like wizards or clerics or people with cool powers and doing cool stuff. Which is also, I suppose, one of the benefits of RuneQuest is, like you said, you can do magic. You can. You, yeah. You're not limited to a particular type of armor or weapon. It's it's very much a an all encompassing rule set. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the things that RuneQuest and my experience with RQ three in particular did really well. I, I know it gets much maligned for stripping Glorantha out of the system, mm. but in some in some part this is because I came from I learned the game from people who liked the generic rule set, but it really in a way opened things up. It opened up what you could do by having it a little bit less restricted by the setting. Mm. On the flip side of that, then, how are you finding the return to Glorantha with the new rules? Um, I love it. I think it is one of the strongest points in the new rulebook is how completely and totally the setting is integrated into the rule set. Yeah, um, it's something that some rules do this really well. Some rules do this really poorly. And overall, I think it's done fairly well. I have opinions maybe about where the how I would how I would have done the rulebook, but obviously, you know, I'm not Chaosium. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that the way it's integrated and the, especially the way the art is integrated into it, it is a rulebook which leaps alive on the page. Mm, yeah, I love the art and the new rules. It's really, yeah. really good. It, it, it really is a stupendous book. Yeah, I think I tend to agree. I mean, there's there's certainly some foibles of using it, which is why it's good that they've got the GM screen and the the quick the quick guides. Essentially, I do think that some of it's problematic, but it's it would be such a huge undertaking to to put that rulebook together. I use the G, that GM reference backward all the time. I don't use it a lot when I GM, um, but I use it pretty much all the time when I'm writing. Um, mm -hmm. In particular, when I'm doing layout, because that's usually when I'm double checking stats. So I'll I'll pop that open on my second screen. I'll kind of flip I flip back and forth as I'm working. So on that, then what made you take the leap into writing for the Johnson Compendium? It sounds like it's something that you were you were doing prior to that anyway. Yeah, sort of. The first RuneQuest thing I wrote was that sorcery rule set, which is abortive. I I threw it up on BRP Central because I realized I'm never going to finish the stupid thing. And I would rather it exist than not exist. I had already been doing a lot of writing, not writing professionally, but doing doing a lot of writing and somewhere in between as a hobby and trying to see if I could turn that into you know a career moving forward. As we played our RuneQuest Glorantha campaign, I had already been writing material because there was when RuneQuest Glorantha came out, there wasn't a lot of material for the new system. Mm. And I wanted, you know, I wanted to use the new date and the new time and have everything set so that when new stuff came out, I'd be ready to go. And I wouldn't have to figure out, you know, the gap between 16, uh, 15 Borderlands and suddenly it's 1625 Pavis. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I'd been writing all this stuff and I kind of had laying around. And so when Mob posted on BRP Central that they were going to be opening up this thing called the Johnstown Compendium, I decided to go look around and see what would be a good fit. And I found the Throat of Winter, which was, it wasn't for RuneQuest, but, you know, I found the Throat of Winter. And yeah, because that was one of the first, if not the first. It was one of the five launch titles. Uh, right. The Throat of Winter, the first Sandheart, 
this fertile ground, I remember being really impressed by how, um, I believe, Paul Sullivan. Uh, I remember being really impressed by the cover because it's a public domain piece of artwork that just has a little digital touch up of the beast rune. It's brilliant. I was hmm. very upset when I saw that because I was like, oh, my God, that's incredibly simple and genius. And why didn't I do that? <laughs> yeah. And I think the other one was the Yasarian's Bandits, I think, was the other launch. One. Yes. Yes. Yasarian. Yes. I was like, I'm trying to go through in my head because there's a couple others in there, like Rocks Fall from Beer with Teeth, which are really early. But I don't think that was a release. Oh, mm. Armies and Enemies. That's why I can't think of the other one. I wasn't the fifth one wasn't a uh, scenario. <laughs> Wow, was, was that one of the first as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was one of the first ones. Wow. Because um, that was technically released before the Johnstown Compendium. Because I think some copies were officially, like uh, like mm. legitimate copies, uh, were sold at a convention right. before the JC came out. So, and did Michael O'Brien from Chaosium reach out to you? Or was it just dumb luck that you were one of the first ones as well? I queried him kind of what's going on, what's the scope uh, after... He, he posted it on BRP and that was, he was just looking for people who were interested. Mm-hmm. And um, he told me to put stuff together. I think I wasn't given like a deadline or anything, but he was just, he was just trying to wait until we had four or five people ready to go so that they could launch it. And there'd be something in the store. Yeah. So I went to work revising the throat of winter and I ended up expanding it by about 5,000 words. I think it was around, eight to 10 K when I started. And I think that the final version, the one that's up there is around 15. And then I had to figure out this art thing and this layout thing and how InDesign works. <laughs> that, that was an adventure. So had you had any experience <laughs> with that previously? No, none. Wow. I had, mm, no, I, I think I played around with InDesign in middle school once. Yep. I don't know. Does that count? And then you did, you've done the layouts for, for um, all of the all of my projects. Wow, fantastic! Yeah. Well, I've yes. got a copy of the Treasures of Glorantha here in front of me, and I must say that it's um, it's excellent. It's the layout from oh, a layout perspective. You. Being in the industry, um, running a web development and design company, I'm, I would be very impressed. I, I would not have picked that it was a a new skill that you've picked up. Certainly. Um, for the record, Rick Mainz oh, is owed enormous mm. kudos from everyone yeah. on the Johnson Compendium who uses his templates, 100%. because what's reflected in that layout is not necessarily my own skill. That's my skill is probably twenty percent of what's going on. What's really being reflected there is Chaosium's skill and their generosity in providing this thing that well, you have you have to spend a little time fiddling with just because it's a new skill and it's a new program to learn but really it's chaosium's generosity in providing these templates and making it so easy to get into it and get started so the throat of winter is a an electrum but obviously that's not on um pod print print on demand is that was that a specific was there a specific reason why you've not added it Uh it pretty much boils down to i threw up a poll in the runequest glorantha facebook group asking hey would people be interested in this being current on demand or would you rather me not bother and uh pretty resoundly boiled down to not bother so i didn't huh. do it interesting i listened to the audience yep and, um, i'm assuming you didn't do the same with treasures oh god no no i was like i want this one i wanted this one physically <laughs> um and that was also before, that was before the electrum requirement so oh. i had already made that query um 
I think I'd sold about 200 and then... No, I think I'd sold about 100 and then the print version came out. I don't remember anymore. That's an Electrum version now though, right? Yes, yes, yeah, it's Electrum now. And I'm pretty sure that would have hit it eventually. It just would have needed some more time. Yeah, it was an interesting decision by Kiosim to add that in, but I think I think it's worthwhile. It makes a lot of sense. Um, I don't think that making print copies eats up a lot of time for Chaosium. From my experience of putting treasures together, I think it really does eat up quite a bit of time for a drive-thru RPG. And that's really kind of the key factor here, is uh, that their staffing is simply limited because that's the nature of business. And if every single person wants everything to become print on demand, that's mm. it's yeah. a hard it's a hard call. Yeah, regardless of whether they're actually produced, that's a that's a workload on their yeah. their end. And that's why I that's why I went to the audience and asked, "Hey, do you guys want this?" Instead of me just saying, "You know what, I'm going to do it," because I felt that you know, if I could go to Chaosium and say, "Hey, all these people said yes, I want this physically," awesome, great. Not a problem. Mm. But, you know, if there's not really that many people who want it, it's not worth drive through RPG's time. It's mm. not worth this time and headache from all these other people being involved. I can live without it. <laughs> for sure. Are you planning on doing any kind of compendium for the months of the month? It's something I've considered. I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to do yet. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to do yet. I, I have a few ideas in mind, a few thoughts. I do know that I do not intend to take any of them which hit Electrum and make that specifically become print-on-demand. I would yeah. consider putting a year bundle together and seeing if that would be interesting to do print-on-demand. The reason I'm kind of hesitant with some of this stuff is because I'm not entirely sure how I would want to do that in a way that makes me feel comfortable running a business for people who've already bought prior editions. Mm. You know, I, I wouldn't want everyone just waiting until December of each year and just picking up that one and, you know, saying, oh, well, that's good enough or something like that, you know? Well, there does seem to be two camps in the in the pricing of those, you know, getting down to the yeah. nitty gritty. Obviously, I can see that you've gone the route of if you've essentially bought the PDF and then you buy the soft cover, you, the, yeah. you've discounted the PDF, I suppose, which makes sense. But then I can also see the argument of people saying, well, you know, the PDF is a product and the, the print-on-demand is a product as well, and these are the two prices. I think a big factor in that is that some other folks have had a lot of struggle getting a print-on-demand version to see the light of day. Mm. It took me maybe six hours of man time total. And again, for the record, you know, this is not, oh my god, Austin's a genius. Nick Brook <laughs> put up a spectacular guide to creating things print on demand and i literally just followed the man's directions and double checked my work and then double checked myself again after they approved me to make sure everything was right and i caught a little thing and i fixed it and then i gave them the files and then it came out and it was good so this is not austin knows everything nick brook was amazing in providing that and it made my life very easy so whereas some people, you know, they've been they have wrestled with it for weeks or months and trying to get everything to work. I don't have that same resentment <laughs> towards the process. <laughs> and if uh, at the risk of asking you to choose one of your children uh, over the others, did you have a, a favorite of the ones you've produced so far? Oh, it's got to be treasures. I mean, obviously. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. the. It, I mean, just from the simple fact that it's the biggest, I put the most work into it. I really like that book. Honestly, I, I might pick Treasures just because of Sasha's cover. 
Sasha's cover is spectacular. The, the cover's excellent. It's so good. It's so good. It was a huge step forward learning for me. And that was kind of why I decided to put it together like I did. You know, reaching out to other writers and saying, hey, do you want to contribute material? Um, I wanted to see really kind of get a little taste for what it's like to be a publisher. And kind of not, not, it's not the same deal as, you know, putting somebody together like the Pegasus Plateau. But I, I wanted a little idea. I want an idea of what that was like. So I could understand more what goes into this and what goes into making RPGs as a business. Well, it also gives you a lot more variety as well in terms of content. It's a very smart move. Um, and that's kind of, well, that's one of the things that's pr- I feel like is pretty archetypical of how I've been approaching the Johnstown Compendium and really thinking of new projects. And that's kind of why I started doing the monsters was I was trying to look at what is not available on the Johnstown Compendium and what might be interesting on the Johnstown Compendium. Mm. I don't know how popular exactly it is, but I know it happens a lot, that it exists a lot, are small bite-sized chunks of content that cost a buck or two um, that you can pick up on DriveThruRPG, and they have, you know, 10 to 20 pages. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what I was trying to... The hole I was trying to fill with with monsters. With treasures, It was it's really an homage to uh, Plunder. Of course, yeah. Plunder does this brilliant thing where it it's not actually a book about magic items. And Treasures of Glorantha isn't really a book about magic items either. It's a primer on Glorantan mythology. And that was that was my goal when I uh, put it together and I designed it. And you can see that really clearly in uh, items like Hippoy's Feather, which has a wonderful illustration by Christy Herbert, where it's, it's a feather from Hippogriff, from the ancestress of all horses. And when it's given to a bonded horse, uh, that horse's uh, mane turns into a feathery crest and they gain some of their ancestors' power. And it also just kind of, as an aside, tells that story about Hippogriff. And so, and that's what Plunder does too. And it's this wonderful way of organically learning more about Glorantha without getting the lore hammer beaten into your skull. Definitely, yeah. It's It definitely fits into the, the way Glorantha handles mythology. You know, it's not a list of sword plus two boots yeah. of jumping type thing like you said the abilities are almost secondary to the the myth of the and the history of the items also some of the items are just plain fun which is another good you know that's another glorantha maximum fun epitaph so but i particularly like the um the tree dragon's blood oh thank you i love items that potentially have a lot of random effects some of which are not entirely positive for the player and then gives them the ability to role play out of those. I really, really like those. Would you like a story about True Dragon's Blood? Sure, go for it. When I wrote up the first version of that article, I was writing a half manuscript of the site Dragon's Rift, which is the site of the Dragon Rise itself. Uh, There's this lovely little blurb about it in the Homeland section in the core rulebook. I have, I, this is, I might come back to this. This You might actually get to see this on the Johnstown Compendium at some point, because I really like it. I just, I get distracted and then I write other things. And also my players left before they did anything interesting at the site itself. And so there's this, there's this whole ruin there and it's haunted by lunar ghosts and, you know, dragon newts are kind of showing up and there's the catacombs where you can go to, go down in and you can talk to the true dragon itself. But if you arrive soon enough, there is still dragon's blood laying across the site from when the true dragon was injured by Scarlet and Nurian, uh, which I believe is in the Glorantha source book. 
And so my my players all kind of go and they look at this and they see this stuff sizzling and bubbling. And it's been about a week since the dragon rise. They saw it from Pavis and immediately were like, let's go check it out. Uh, <laughs> and I was, I was incredibly peeved because I did not plan for this. <laughs> <laughs> I had like three plot threads like ready available kind of offered up on platters and they all decided they go up to King Argraph and say, hey, do you want someone to go check out what happened with the gigantic dragon that ate a bunch of people? We were volunteering. So they went. So they go up and they start trying to attune to the molten dragon's blood, which if you remember from the article has all sorts of terrible things that can happen to you. In the end, I had two people uh, roll draconic consciousness which is when you're, you have attempted to attune, much as you would attune to a magic crystal, the living essence of a true dragon. And it has driven you completely insane. And this had some rather long-term uh, effects for the campaign, which were really quite entertaining. Um, including, in particular, one of my friends, Adventurer, intermittently being Argrath's best buddy and... Um, friendly dragon chum having a mental break and hide it in the closet for two weeks because he was pretty sure that everyone was actually a dragon and then later finding an enchanted sword with a haunted by a ghost who hates dragons and suddenly deciding ah yes i will listen to the scary ghost instead of my king sounds like a bit of a crossover to um call of cthulhu almost a little we didn't we never really quite reached that part because they never actually tried to fight a true dragon much to my disappointment Obviously, you've got a lot of publications then, so you touched briefly on the layout. And were there any other elements of the publication that you struggled with? And if so, how did you overcome them, assuming that you did? Every publication really is different. Uh, the biggest struggle I have is getting monsters done on time, <laughs> hmm. which is kind of why I decided to do it monthly, um, was you know make a commitment to doing something which was on a clock and then keeping that clock practicing the discipline of doing the writing and doing the work and it usually ends up with me kind of frenziedly making things up as i go in that last week or so yeah have you got a roster of ideas that you kind of pluck from and then flesh out uh sort of it really kind of varies from month to month i have known what i was going to do for december for a few months now it's not holiday themed actually mm -hmm. i just i just have an idea that i think would be fun to end off the first year of monster of the month with i think it would be it would amuse me so it'll be 12 months from december yeah yeah the first one was in january and are those, those are silver are any of those electrum or they're all silver no uh none of them are electrum there's a whole bunch that are silver they're a mix of silver and copper for the most part I want to say that Hjortlings of Sartar, which is a NPC folio of various persons, and it's all presented in printer-friendly form, so you can just print and go at the table, which I understand no one's doing because of COVID, but it's there, and I like it that way, so it's there. But I'm pretty sure that's inching close to Electrum. I mean, we touched on that briefly previously. It's a bit of a, a sidestep, but the resurgence of online role-playing because of COVID has actually um, really come to the fore because I'm in such a remote location 
in Perth in Western Australia, we've been playing online for two years now. So even prior to COVID, so it was we didn't even miss a beat. But uh, it's been interesting hearing some other people's experiences trying to get online and still running games. Uh, have you so have you been running in person or you're purely online at the moment? Uh, we've meandered ourselves into a hiatus for uh, the last couple months. Um, but for about the first six months of COVID, we were pretty consistently doing uh, it on Discord. Um, mm-hmm. Honestly, I've got to admit, uh, I have never had a better GMing experience than just running things uh, over the internet because I, I have enough desk space that I can have a book out. Um, yeah. I can have a notepad out to scribble on. And I have one monitor for the map of wherever we are. And I've got another monitor for Discord. And we've got dice uh, made in there. So we've got a dice bot in the right in the discord and it's great oh. and i've got like all of my tools and you know if i need something i can just look up the pdf and it's right there and it's wonderful i don't know that that was necessarily reflected in my players experiences <laughs> um because we play yeah. we we do discord for audio and then roll 24 really just for maps and combat and dice and whatnot and it works works seems to work really well I, we mucked a little with Roll20, and I basically decided I wasn't going to bother learning it unless we were continuing this for quite a bit longer. <laughs> mm. Yeah, there's a little bit of um, bit of a learning curve in there. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of getting the publications together, then obviously you mentioned that you spoke to Nick in terms of the print-on-demand. Did he have any input on any of the content, or did you run it past anybody else within the, the various Facebook groups? I I've occasionally posted things once in a while in the Johnstown Compendium Creators group, kind of looking for feedback and things. I I did that in particular with Heortlings uh, when I was kind of feeling out how I wanted to do the the layout for those uh, non-player character sheets, and I, I I occasionally share things with other writing groups that I chat with. I share stuff with some of my old fiction groups. We haven't been meeting because of COVID, unfortunately. But every once in a while, I come in and I'll we have we have one that would meet in a town in my area, and I always bring in something strange. They're used to me bringing in weird things, but uh, every once in a while, I'll bring in this game stuff, and they'd give me this kind of strange look, and they're <laughs> like, "Well, it reads fine." <laughs> yeah. And I and then I thank them very much for tolerating me because I either bring in things that read like E.R. Edison or I bring in things that talk about something that makes no sense or I bring in things with run on sentences that last for four paragraphs uh, or I bring in RuneQuest things and they don't speak role playing game. But it still translates from a writing perspective. Yeah, yeah. You know, at at the end of the day, writing a, a sentence is writing a sentence. I also don't understand some of the stuff they bring in and I find it fascinating and I love to see it. It's a good experience for me. Mm. No, it's definitely interesting, especially considering, you know, we're all, or most of us anyway, generally, this is our first attempt at doing any kind of writing. So it's um, it's definitely a new skill. Yeah, I started doing writing through a organization called National Novel Writing Month, uh, or NaNoWriMo. And so I started with fiction. I haven't been writing like super long, but I've been doing that for a couple of years and then continuing to write pretty much every day for anywhere from like half an hour to a couple hours before the JC happened. Um, mm. I, I wouldn't say I was, I'm like an old hand or anything, but I had, I had some experience going in and writing for game content and writing fiction are two different skill sets. They're pretty different, mm. um, but there's still a lot of overlap. There's still a lot of layers. You kind of, you're sort of outlining it to the GM. Yeah. And then they translate it into their, into their game world. 
honestly, like what I really like about doing game design and writing for RuneQuest and Glorantha in particular is that I can just kind of natter on as much as I want about world building and the setting and things like that. And then just kind of go, okay, go figure out the rest yourselves. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I really enjoy like all the details in the world building and all that stuff. And it's this plot nonsense that I sometimes struggle with. Hmm. Do you have any tips on kind of developing plot from your from, well, from your experience and from your writing groups? I don't really have anything that I think is like, yes, absolutely, obviously relevant for scenario design. There's a reason that my only scenario on the Johnstown Compendium is uh, go into the cave and kill the bad guy. Um, that's really that's a really easy scenario to write, and you can do a lot of interesting things with it. You can kind of give little yeah. and touches and stuff, and you, you can create interesting situations with a dungeon crawl. And that's what most of what I've played, and that's what I really enjoy. Mm. But uh, you know, writing writing an intrigue scenario, writing an investigative scenario like anything from Call of Cthulhu or from the Corn Dolls is a different experience. The kind of the core of fiction writing is usually trying to figure out how to get the character's emotional story to be prominent on stage. And the danger with taking that piece of advice and going to scenario design is that there is a very real risk that you can see in lots of public uh, published adventures of taking a non-player character's story and making it the main story. Mm. Um, this is something that the scenario, the pairing stones in Pegasus Plateau does a good job of avoiding because while it is the, um, the couple's story in the pairing stones, the adventure does a very good job of making the adventure be about what do the players decide mm. in the context of this story and how does that impact their relationships with other people? Because that's the key thing. You can write a scenario, which is, you know, story A, but then you've got the protagonists, which are going to be different every time. So yeah. trying to gel the protagonist to a story and dovetail them together, is that's an art, I think, to be able to have a, a logical entry for the players into the scenario. And then depending on, on the outcomes, it's an interesting one. And that's why I like classic uh, swords and sorcery, uh, go defeat the bad guy and save the day stuff because that's real easy <laughs> yeah that's and, right I mean, it's still fun it's like it's not bad or worse because it's easy i admire the stuff that's harder but like there's nothing bad or wrong about the very simple um swashbuckling games mm. it doesn't have to be all about basket weaving in the earth temple no but you know and again you're you know your glorantha will vary and it's giving oh, you the absolutely. setting to just do whatever you like it's it's, it's um, yeah right from that perspective so have there been uh, have you had much feedback um, and have you been happy with the overall sales you know was was it more than you expected or I had no idea what to expect when I first put together the throat of winter um mm -hmm. it's a little lower than I had guessed but I think that's because I didn't realize that this is really actually a quite niche hobby <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> I, I I you know I don't necessarily think that oh my god we're getting terrible sales or anything. I think it's that I didn't realize that a real properly brought blockbuster book anywhere on drive through RPG is selling 500 mm. copies. Yeah. <laughs> that, you know, something hitting gold, like six seasons in Sartar or like the rough guide to glamor really is a significant achievement in the role-playing game world. 
And I, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, looking at the, the top 100, uh, well, it was a couple of weeks ago, I think the JC had probably six or seven publications in the top 100, which I think is, a, is yeah. pretty significant. So even though we're, oh, we're yeah. in a small community, I think we're in obviously a very passionate, maybe catch-up uh, community. Yeah, there's kind of this element in the way I kind of reflect on the audience and on our community that really Glorantha is a bit of a captive audience. A lot of what has come out for it over the years has been uh, rehashes or reprints of material that existed since the 80s. And while you do have things like the guide to uh, Glorantha, which are stupendous uh, Mm -hmm. and really open up the world in ways that no one ever expected, at the end of the day, it's difficult to take the guide to Glorantha and turn that into, okay, how do I save my tribe from trolls? It's a very wide world, but it's, and there's, it's very rich, but there's still a lot of very empty spaces that gives enough room for the players to go about their, their every day. I mean, what I'm finding with the Guide to Garantha, which I treated myself to a couple of months ago, it's really, really good for scenario hooks. So there's just so many little bits of tidbit information sprinkled throughout, you know, in specific regions that it's really good for, for seed ideas, I'm finding. Yeah. And so I, I think that the Johnstown Compendium is wonderful because and i think it's been so successful really on a honestly on an industry industry style scale because Mm. there is a passionate community that hasn't gotten a chance to really indulge in that passion and chaosium's really providing products that these people can indulge in but chaosium it does take time to make a official beautiful product Mm. and for someone making smaller stuff, it takes less time. And so I think that that's what's, what's really cool about it is that you can make all of these, you can, you can make more for people who want more. I think that's a good way to put it. You can make more for people who want more. So these are um, shot glasses of content between the, the steins of official publications. That's a great comparison. That's a great <laughs> comparison. Especially because some of them are utterly intoxicating. <laughs> yeah yeah oh and so i mean some of them really do they're they're up there with the official with the official applications they're really great but i'm very excited for the new stuff to come out from chaosium as i'm sure everybody else is oh yes <laughs> so if you had unlimited time and unlimited budget what project would you undertake next i was thinking i knew this one was coming i was thinking this one over a little um if i had unlimited time and unlimited budget budget's the key one here I would make a spectacular, uh, lush art pack free for use for everyone on the Johnstown Compendium. Yep, that's uh, certainly something that's needed, <laughs> I think, for sure. And yeah, budget is definitely, uh, definitely. Yeah. In there. <laughs> Budget's the real one on there. Um, more, not realistically, it's not a question about realism, but um, more in Austin's creative pursuits. Uh, I would love to write something looking at the sorcery using areas in the West. Um, I remember paging through the uh through the guide and fronella looked really interesting there's a little patch of fronella which is still under the band that i think it'd be really cool to write something about that because there's canonically nothing known about it so that's great that's problem solved i don't have to worry about stamping on someone's foot um i would uh also be interested in meandering into loskalm as a recovering platonist i think that the idea of 
fantasy Plato's Republic would be really fun to explore. I also would really enjoy, and I'm probably going to fiddle with these actually at some point, trying to see how far can we push that barrier of your Glorantha will vary. A lot of the times when we talk about your Glorantha will vary, we talk about kind of little ways. Um, you know, oh, this chief has a different name in your world. Uh, oh, maybe these gods interact in a slightly different way. What if there were space marines? <laughs> <laughs> what would happen if Odin invaded Glorantha and tried to usurp Orlanth? Yep, that would that would certainly vary. I want to I want to see like what's like the how hard can we bend this before it goes completely haywire? And I think that that also fits into the meta plot of the Hero Wars. You know, I don't think it would be wrong for uh, Odin to come in out of nowhere on uh, his nine legged horse, trampling across the Orlanthi as the ally of Darahapa, and everyone looks with a very confused expression. <laughs> That's next for the Johnstag Compendium. Space Marines for um, Pavis. Love it. Yes, yes. And, you know, like, I think that that would be very interesting to do. Just, like, how wild can you get it? How how far out there? Not even, like, still kind of on theme with Galantha, but totally off theme. Like, completely bizarro. Yeah, which, and, you know, the system's there to do it, and I think, he, I think it would slot in quite nicely. I'm not sure how well it would sell. <laughs> on the compendium but it was well oh, in fact you, it could, you never know it could be a oh you just have to find a way to market it right you just have to market it right yeah for sure maybe it's the dwarves i know uh one idea that i had was hero questing beyond the realms of time beyond beyond the web of time that's the <laughs> the phrase i had for it as like the prospective title so basically uh the entire point is you do the Lightbringer's hero quest, and at the critical point you fail on purpose. And that kicks you out of Arachnid Solara's web, and you can roam the multiverse of all the chaos horrors and different worlds and things like that, and kind of expand really almost into a D&D esque uh, multiverse of like, what's beyond time itself? Like, what craziness is out there? I'm, I, may, I may have made up that idea, largely because I was really getting sick of constantly referring to the guide to figure out the name of the little town. <laughs> yeah, just, just looking at <laughs> so this next question is being somewhat contentious. So, what's your favorite John Sand Compendium product that you weren't involved in but would have liked to have been? Oh, it's got to be Sandheart. Right away, Sandheart. Um, that stuff's brilliant. Uh, it has a wonderful blend of like the detailed setting stuff that I'm really into while still giving cool scenarios for the players to play. Um, mm -hmm. Finding a way to put players at odds with the greater society, but while still being a part of it. I love traditions take on hero questing in particular, the bit where players have to write down or give secret answers of what they're doing is great. It's <laughs> Yeah, that's great. And, you know, I love really the mechanic that John has there where your magic points go down or increase depending on how you respond to the scenario. Because for me, it's not about your magic points. It's about your pow. So how much power your adventurer has, how strong their soul is, is what carries you through that dark night into the bright dawn beyond it. I love it. Yeah, it's excellent. So Treasures of Glorantha, Volume 1, Dragon Pass, the title lends itself to think that there's going to be a Volume 2. Can we assume that, or do you have other works that are in the pipeline that you can tell us about? 
Volume 2 is going to exist. Uh, I haven't started primary drafting on it yet. I actually talked a little about this over on my blog, Akalos.com. It's the same funky, hard-to-spell word that's on the front of pretty much all of my products. If you ever want to check it out, shameless plug. Volume 2, I am going to theme around the Second Age. My primary goal is to provide magic items and treasures and secrets and so forth, specifically about what has survived from the Second Age to the Third Age. I also, this this is the harder part, is I would like to make what's in the book available for people who want to play games in the Second Age. That's another one of those places where I think your Glorantha will vary has a lot of power. I think exploring the different ages in our games is something that it's it's hard to do because there's not a lot of material out there. But I think it's something that's interesting to do too. Really the kind of the two marquee things of what Austin has to write before I can start exploring more of what I'm doing with this is I want to write a if possible abridged history of the second age, which means I'll have to do a lot of research and looking into what exactly the Middle Sea Empire was and how it all clicked, uh, as well as the Empire of the Worms Friends, and basically tell that story in a way that's interesting and not 60 pages. And then I also, I have some ideas for uh, writing up some rules for God-learner alchemy that I think would be fun. Kind of, what can what can you make if you know how to transmute metals and subvert the myths that fundament reality? There really isn't very much about alchemy in the new version compared to what there used to be in the yeah. old version. You know, um, somebody brought it up on one of the Facebook pages about the taste analysis um, skill that there used to be, where you could taste a particular potion or liquid or whatever and actually determine whether it was a poison or healing, or which I don't think is in the new one, but I really like. I don't recall it in the new one. I'm not... If it was RQ2, I'm, I'm real... Real unsure what all was in RQ2. I never played yeah. it and I've never read it. I know throughout what I've been working on, I've been trying to do my best not to add to skill lists is one of my approaches when I'm making new content. Um, sometimes you, you can't help yourself. You just add a skill. Sometimes it just happens. In general, I've been trying not to do so too extensively because we don't need me to put taste analysis and another person to and their version to write analyze potion and yada 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 and then you have four different versions of a skill that you know no one really needs it'll make life easier for the players in the gm is kind of my two cents but before i don't know what my i i, I know what my next monster is going to be but i don't know what my next larger work is going to be exactly i have two in process the first is a book about the azrulian city silphy what really caught my eye in the guide about this one is that it is the home of the Hevder and Deeg Library, which trains the Sword Sages of Langramai. Although mm. they've been unsword saged in the current canon, but I'm resword saging them. I'm giving them back their swords. <laughs> uh, I want my warrior scholar monks. I want my sword sorcerers, and I'm going to have them. Damn it! And I have no idea when Silt is going to come out. I I really like working on that book, but. It has bloated out of my control, and I don't have a strong mental concept. I read a lot. I really enjoy research, and I kind of meander all over the place. I wouldn't say I'm an expert on anything, but I like to meander into all sorts of different corners and kind of steal a little bit from here and a little bit from there, and that's what I've been doing. And I think Silty is going to be a great book. I think it's going to be really, really hard to finish. It's going to be an absolute nightmare to edit. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Um, I'm definitely finding that as well with one of my projects that it's morphing and evolving as, as it goes and it just gets oh, bigger yeah. and bigger and bigger. You have to kind of rein yourself in after a while, I think. Otherwise, you know, they'll never get finished. Yeah. Selfie is very much one of those things where, uh, you know, before you hit me up to get started with this interview, um, I was working on a cylinder seal design, which might get used as part of the publication because I thought it would be interesting to see how uh, the grandmothers of the city sign contracts and out of the Near East and really kind of across most of what we really think of as the historical Bronze Age, excluding things like China. You know, they've got these cylindrical pieces of stone, which you roll across a clay tablet and that signs the tablet if you're not literate. And, you know, it's one of the things that I was reading about. So I was like, well, let's see what a Glorantham one looks like. I'll draw one. And if I like the idea and if I have space and layout when I finally finish this stupid thing, maybe I'll pay someone to write, make a better version because my, my art's not very good. Yeah, art's definitely one of the things that, I mean, luckily for us, we've got some amazing artists in the community that are, are willing. Oh, yes. Oh, um, yes. How, how did you source the art, actually, interestingly enough? in Because um, you've got quite a variety in treasures. Is that yeah. just from, how did you source those artists? Let's see. Uh, pretty much any time I see someone in our communities doing art and saying, hey, look what I did. And, you know, being a fan and being cheerful, I try to hit them up and pay them money to do art. Mm -hmm. um, if I have something kind of in my mind and ready to go, because I want to support the community and see what's there. In Treasures, with Treasures in particular, one of my goals was to have a variety of styles as well. I thought that would be interesting yeah. for that book. So in addition to sourcing from among members in the community, for me, the main resources I've used has been the uh, freelancing site Fiverr. There's a lot of art available mm -hmm. there. That's how I first met, met Sasha, who did the cover. Um, he did the cover for Throw to Winter as well. And then I contacted him, him again uh, for Treasures because I really liked his work on Throat. Yeah, funnily enough, the cover for Legion was also a Fiverr artist. Ah, yeah. Um, I've got to say that I did have two bad experiences, so it's very hit and miss, but the guy that I'm using for that is is fantastic. It's interesting, because I, I have had almost entirely positive experiences with Fiverr. Hmm. There's an artist that has done a couple different illustrations for me now that I kind of I find I keep returning to. Um, she did the cover on the Storm Rams that I did, I think, I think that was August mm -hmm. for monsters um, and her arts elsewhere throughout both monsters and in treasures. Uh, she did a piece in throat and that's how I got to know her. Did she do the, um, the Atalantia spear artwork? No, that was someone else. Um, she did. Uh, there's a little bit with uh, for the item light of Sartar where it shows someone lighting the eponymous torch from the uh, brazier in the Temple of Sartar. Although you can't really see the background details because I didn't give her any because we didn't get them. It, it, it's more a thought piece than a full piece. Cartoonish. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. she's got this wonderful um, sort of comic or cartoonish uh, mm -hmm. colorful style to it that really, it fits very well with some of the new art, the Chaosium's Commission. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. Uh, in particular, the art in the Adventures book and the Game Master Screen Pack was what really it kept in my mind. Mm. And while not looking like it's 
stylistically derivative. It's it's a really nice blend. It certainly lends itself to want to be able to pan out and see the rest of the picture almost on that one. And so her her style is it's really great for fantasy. I think it, you know that style, that sort of watercolor, um, sort of colored pencil, bright colors, heavy lines works really well for fantasy because you don't you don't have to strain yourself to think about it. And I think it's good to have different art throughout publication as well, because it does reflect on the different experiences people are going to have. Um, And it just makes it a bit more visually interesting as well, I think. I know one of the things I'm thinking about for uh, another of my forthcoming works um, is I'm considering theming each chapter with a different artist. Mm. So it kind of has the same feel for each section of the book. Yeah, that is uh, Melakafkaz, the O God of Traps which I released a preview of that material as September's monster. Um, if people are interested in kind of getting a little idea, maybe what's going on there. That one you'll probably is probably the next long thing you'll see from me. It is bloating a little, but it's not bloating as bad as most of my stuff does. Um, I still have a pretty firm mental picture of, Hey, here's what I'm doing. And here's where I'm going. I really like the framing on that one. Honestly, uh, basically, that book originates from kind of, I was flicking through the magic chapter and we have the spell detect traps, but we have no traps for rune quest. Mm. So I decided to fix that. And the framing is that it's, uh, you know, I'm writing about a cult that is worshiping the God of traps. And so it's setting up the mythology and the history and the backstory of, and their anthropology of all of this stuff that really boils down to how do you want to kill your players today? Which is always the GM's goal, of course. Oh, yeah, and I am happy to help them. I might not be quite as helpful as Simon Fit, but I'm happy to help. <laughs> so thanks for coming along today and answering those questions. The, the final one, as always, is, so which runes or deity do you commit yourself today? You know, I'm going to have to go with Odela. Uh, the, most, the only RuneQuest Glorantha character I've gotten to play, as opposed to GM, was an assistant shaman who worshipped Odela. And you know what? Bear for the bear god. He's <laughs> loud and angry, and I just, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, Jayla's uh, a great, great character. You, know, you, you throw on bear strength, you howl at someone, you maybe throw an Orlanth spell too if you're being a little, uh, a little scummy. And you just, it's just incredibly exciting and incredibly ridiculous what you can do. And it's, and it's fun, and it's so much fun. Fantastic. Well, thanks for uh, it's certainly been fun for me anyway, and great talking to you. I'm sure we'll oh, have you on again. Been fun for me too. Once the the new publications are out, we'll get you on again. Oh, I'd love to be here. Beautiful. <laughs> Good stuff. All right, no worries. Thanks very much, Austin. All right. Thanks for having me, Neil. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Black Alex. If you enjoyed the podcast, we'd love it if you were able to leave a review or rating on iTunes or your podcast software of choice. Or if you really liked it, you can support us via Patreon. You can contact us with questions and interview requests via our Facebook page, facebook.com slash groups slash The Project, or email us at theroomquestproject at gmail.com.